Well, welcome everyone to SALT. Um, I'm Zach. Uh, if you're new here, I'm one of the teachers here, and yeah, we're super excited to have you in this cafeteria. It's very hot. Or should you provide me a hand? I'll be making good use of it this evening. So if you just see me like standing over here like this, it's needed because it's been like over 90 degrees for the last couple of days, and I have been going insane. So if you have been with us for any amount of time uh, this summer, and I think we were even starting the series like before summer got out for a lot of us, we've been in the book of Job, um, and that's where we're going to continue and kick off for tonight. Uh, last week, we came about to the middle of the book. Uh, Christian took us through his passage, I think two weeks ago, we had the potluck last week, which was awesome and great to see all of you there, and we had an awesome time, lots of good food, lots of pasta stuff, and there's a really great theme for the next potluck, but that's going to be shared later, and I'll spoil that, but I'm very excited about it, so I love food. Um, but uh, tonight, we're going to jump into our passage, um, but before we do, I just want to personally congratulate and also kind of encourage this community. Uh, Job is one of my favorite books of the Bible, like hands down. I think you, a lot of you can say the same, um, but it is also one of the most emotionally difficult books to read critically. And uh, I, I speak for the rest of the teachers, and I just say that I have been so impressed with how this community has received God's word through Job. Uh, we've talked about a lot of very controversial topics and issues, especially in the American church, that are very controversial, and I know there have been lots of times where I've come up here, or one of the other teachers has come up here, and we've been expecting to receive a lot more criticism than encouragement, and that has yet to uh, be the case. Um, I really appreciate that we have a community where we love to struggle and wrestle with hard biblical truths, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, because it's God's truth and God wants us to learn something from it. And we come together in small groups and think about those ideas critically, and, and it's just been so cool to see how this community has grown. Many of you have come up to either myself, Jeff, Jared, or Christian, and have just shared with us um, just how much this series has, has meant to you and just how much this has been growing your faith and understanding of who God is. So I just want to encourage you guys just personally from me because it's been really great and I've, I've really enjoyed this series and I'm kind of sad that, that we're almost we're almost done because I've been having a lot of fun and also it's just been very insightful and hearing the word of God. So with that being said, we're kind of recapture or kind of review what Christian talked about two weeks ago. And Christian took us through, I think it was chapters 18 and 19, uh, and these two chapters, what he decided to focus on is probably one of the most emotionally challenging questions that, that believers and non-believers wrestle with. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why does God allow populations to be massacred? Uh, why does he allow children to be orphaned? Why, why does he allow husbands and wives to be widowed from each other? And why does he allow the church to be persecuted under the reign of, of despots and tyrants? You know, why, why, why? And we find that, that the answers to these questions are sometimes skewed by culture and the American church. And Satan is notorious for, for using this doubt negatively against us, for, for attacking us with it. And he asks us in the back of our head, you know, if, if, if a good God allows such pain and such suffering to exist, is God really good? 
and thanks to God's Word, we know that, that such suffering exists in the world, as Christians taught us. Such suffering is allowed to exist by God to save our souls. And we know this to be true because such suffering had to be allowed by God for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And not just to pay the price for our sins, but, but when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is ascribed to us so that we might be rightly accepted into heaven. So if Jesus' is suffering on the cross doesn't compromise our faith, but is actually the reason for it, then why would the suffering that we experience on earth serve as a reason for us to lose faith in God, for us to not trust Him? And instead, when we, when we enter a time of suffering and pain, it, it should be an opportunity for us to steward our pain well for the glory of God. And so, so with that in mind, I hope that you'll see through tonight's message that, that Christ's sacrifice is just so important. It, it is so vital. It's such good news. And spreading that good news, spreading the gospel, is, is key. It's key to this planet's salvation. So with that, if you haven't turned your Bibles open to Job, please open your Bibles to Job. We're going to be in chapters 20 and 21 this evening. In chapter 20, we find that uh, Zophar speaks for the second time. And he, he, he begins this way. My troubled thoughts prompt me to answer, because I am greatly disturbed. I hear a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. So Zophar is offended by Job's response to Bildad in, in chapter 19. Job, Job isn't doing what Zophar wants. Zophar would like to see Job repent for, for something, for some unconfessed sin, some sin that's hidden, hidden to the rest of his friends. Zophar would like to see Job repent for that. And instead, in chapter 19, Job continues to insist that, that he is innocent and that, that he is not suffering because of some sin that he committed. But Zophar does not just believe that, that Job is just, you know, some guy who, you know, he, he stole a couple of cookies from the department store and, you know, just, you know, just apologize. You know, he's not some sinner, you know, it's fine. No, he did. Zophar puts Job in the category of the wicked, God's nemesis, the damned. Uh, the first time Zophar speaks in chapter 11, Zophar stresses three main ideas. I'm kind of recapping for the first time he speaks with a little informal understanding of, of tonight's message. The three main points that Zophar stresses are, are God's infinite transcendence, the need for Job to repent for some unconfessed sin so that God will restore his good fortune, and the inescapable destruction of the wicked. In chapter 11, uh, verse 11, Zophar says to, to Job, Surely he, God, recognizes deceivers, and when he sees evil, does he not take note? But the witless can no more become wise than a wild donkey colt, than, sorry, than a wild donkey's colt can be born human. Here's what Zophar is saying to Job. Job, God is punishing you because you are holy and altogether an evil, wicked person. 
but you will likely continue to suffer God's wrath and continue to suffer in anguish because you refuse to repent. And in fact, the chances of you repenting are about as slim as a donkey giving birth to a human baby. So you will continue to suffer because you refuse to repent for your sins. So there's this circular sort of logic that Zophar is illustrating. And in chapter 20, Zophar continues to invent this doctrine of his. And he adds in verse 6 in chapter 20 that the Job actually has such a godless pride that reaches to the heavens, touches the clouds, and it's because of this pride that Job will perish forever and be forgotten like some dream of the night. And Zophar carries on about the fate of the wicked and how Job will also continue to suffer if he does not repent. Starting in verse 11, kind of going to be bouncing around here a little bit. Zophar says to Job, The youthful vigor that fills his bones, the wicked man's bones, will lie with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth and he hides it under his tongue, it will become the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. He cannot save himself by his treasure. Nothing is left for him to devour. His prosperity will not endure. This is in verse 24. Though he flees from an iron weapon, a bronze-tipped arrow pierces him. The heavens will expose his guilt. The earth will rise up against him. Such is the fate God allots the wicked. The heritage appointed them appointed for them by God. So Zophar resorts to the most primitive argumentative tactic that has ever been employed and still is employed today, intimidation. Zophar seeks to scare Job into submission with these visions of the damned who the wicked are and their pending doom and damnation so that so that you know Job will succumb and, and repent for the sin that, that he has committed. But what Zophar is not necessarily what Zophar is saying is not necessarily true when we examine the situational context of, of what's going on right here. Uh, the verses on their own, taken out of context, sound like truth. But when we acknowledge that this conversation is happening in, in a certain context, where there is Zophar is claiming that essentially, if you are suffering, it means that you are sinning. We find that what he's saying is completely. Foolish. According to, to Zophar, or sorry, what Zophar is responding to Job, and this is kind of why he's making this thing. Zophar is responding to Job, he sees that Job is suffering. And so, so the way Zophar justifies that suffering is by claiming that, well, there must be some sin that you've committed. And in regards to the judgment that he speaks of, Zophar talks about how the wicked will be treated by God. In regards to the judgment and the punishment that he's speaking of, Zophar isn't speaking about a post-death eternal damnation. He is actually speaking about how God treats the wicked during their mortal lives on earth. Now we see in verse 22, Zophar says, in the midst, he's talking about in the present, in the here and now. In the midst of his plenty, distress will overtake him, the wicked man. The full force of misery will come upon him. So if you're not experiencing any sort of suffering, according to Zophar, then, then you are right with God. God views you as righteous and, and blameless, because suffering is, in, is indicative of, of guilt. It's indicative of sin. 
And additionally, probably the more important part here is that Zophar doesn't actually lend Job an eternal perspective on this issue. See, he doesn't actually tell Job what actually happens to the wicked after they die. He doesn't actually tell Job how God views all of humanity while we live and breathe. And why? Why is that? Why Why can't Zophar offer any insight on this issue? It's because God hasn't told anyone yet. Job is the oldest text we have that the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the, the gospel, hasn't been written yet. So Zophar is, is drawing from nothing. He is inventing this, this creation, this belief in his head to justify what is happening to his friend. When Zophar should be reminding Job of God's mercy and love, which they actually do have evidence for, because Job was prospering before he was suffering, and, and God was providing for Job and was, was giving him luxury and money, and, and, and there, is, there is evidence of God's provision. And instead of reminding Job of God's mercy, love, and provision, Zophar opts for his own belief and fabricated doctrine to justify what's going on and to scare Job into admitting that he is wrong. So now moving into chapter 21, we hear from Job. And what we will also notice is that Job is guilty of the same thing that Zophar is. Job is also inventing his own doctrine to, to adjust, to justify the perspective and his experience that he's seeing his situation through. He also lacks an eternal perspective about how God treats the wicked and how God treats humanity. And his suffering, he has allowed his suffering to craft his belief. And another kind of fun little side note about Job's rebuttal to Zophar, it's not necessarily contributing to the theme at all, but, but it does help when analyzing the two texts. Job's response and rebuttal to, to Zophar matches almost about the same argumentative style and structure that Zophar does. So from premise to premise, you can, you can pretty much see kind of how Job is, is addressing the claims that Zophar makes. And all that really does is show just how extreme both of these men's beliefs and doctrines are. First of all, we see just how, how different Job's response to this issue is by the first couple of verses in, in chapter 21. In verse 2, uh, he says, Listen carefully to my words. Let this, his friends listening to him, let this be the consolation you give me. Bear with me while I speak, and after I have spoken, mock on. And so Job is coming already right off the get-go. He's coming from a place of hopelessness and, and despair, and, and that plays into his doctrine later on. We'll quickly see that. But Job's actual rebuttal begins in verse 7. We quickly see the stark contrast from so far. Why do the wicked live on? growing old and increasing in power. They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. Their bulls never fail to breed. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. And then Job reiterates that, that he is innocent. And that while the wicked blatantly defy God, Job stands aloof from their plans 
man suffers anyways, while the wicked man prospers. So Job's confused, because he's seeing his faithfulness to God, and, and at this point he's like, why am I not getting any sort of a reward for, for any of my actions at all? And additionally, there appears to be no justice reserved for the wicked who have done horrible things. And he likely makes these claims, no doubt, because of what happened to him in chapter 1. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. This is probably why he says, uh, later in chapter 20, Yet how often is the lamp of the wicked snuffed out? How often does calamity come upon them? The fate of God allots in His anger. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Now, now we've seen in prior times when Job has been speaking, Job kind of tried to help his friends understand that the calamity can come upon anyone. But, but his ending remarks in, in chapter 21 do not indicate that he believes this anymore. In verse 31, he says, Who denounces their conduct to their face? Who repays them for what they have done? They are carried to the grave, watch and watches and watches kept over their tombs. He's asking God, God, that's your job, right? It's your job to punish the wicked. And all my stuff was just stolen from me, and, and all I receive in return are, are boiled bruises and a broken heart. Isn't that your responsibility, God, to, to bring justice? Aren't, aren't you just? Who? And at this point, we see in chapter 20, and Job doesn't believe that, that the wicked are punished at all. And Job makes the same mistake as Zophar. Obviously, we read that, and we have the full text of the Bible in front of us, so that we can read it, and we know that these claims that both men are making are untrue. But, but yet, they, they invent their own doctrine. Job makes the same mistake as Zophar. He deals in absolutes. We have these two extreme perspectives on how God interacts with humanity, and they're both false. Job has allowed his experience to cloud his objective knowledge and understanding of who God actually is. There's no eternal perspective. He's not looking beyond his pain and suffering. He's, he's sitting in it, and that's all he can see right now. And despite the fact that there's no text that either man can reference to either support or deny or refute what each other are saying, you know, they, they can't go to Jeremiah, they can't go to Nehemiah or Isaiah and go, oh my gosh, look, this is what's coming. Those books weren't written yet. Despite the fact that there's no text and they're inventing their own doctrine anyway, that's not even the biggest mistake that both of these men make. By far, the biggest mistake that both men make in their arguments is that they confuse their ideas about suffering and punishment. Zophar claims that all suffering is punishment. Suffering and punishment are one and the same thing. Suffering is used by God to destroy the wicked people of the world. Now, Job claims that this, that, that this is not the case, that, that suffering stands, stands alone and that it can happen to anyone. But what we see in chapter 21 
where he goes wrong is that he indicates that there actually just is flat out no punishment, no justice. God doesn't bring the gavel down and sentence the wicked to anything that they deserve at all. He believes this to be true, and by believing it to be true, he essentially claims that God is not just. So what does the Bible say is true? We have the benefit of being able to reference the whole book. We have the benefit of being able to reference the whole truth. But even even despite that fact, even despite that, that we have the full text, we don't really have an excuse to invent our own doctrine. We we often, myself included, invent our own doctrines anyways to justify things. We oftentimes view our experience through our interactions with the people and the areas and places and, and bad things that have happened to us. Instead of trying to view our experience through God's eyes, that's why God gave us the full completed word is so that it may be a little bit easier to see God's perspective on things. And it is so easy when, when, when grief or when crisis comes, it's so easy to run immediately to that human defense of just trying to justify something quickly instead of trying to think about it critically. It's so easy to paint a either subjectively positive image of God or a subjectively negative image of God just to justify what's going on. And so far in Job, do, they do that. But, and, and if we are not careful, when we make those quick justifications, oftentimes our reasoning for things is not entirely biblical. Let's see, where did I go? So the one thing I do want to say about the disagreement between Job and Zophar is that what they're disagreeing on is big. There's this question about the wicked and the fate of the wicked and how God treats the wicked and is he just, is he not just, is such a monumental indicator of where you believe God is in your head. Who do you believe God to be? The answer to that question indicates that you believe that God is just or not just, as we've seen from these two men's responses. So I have two messages for you tonight. One, one of hope, and then the one, one's a little bit more somber, but I think what you will find quickly is that they really kind of end up being one and the same. How many of you would say that justice is a good thing? Oh, all of your hands should be going up. And I've always wanted to do this, because I am never one of those guys that raises the hand when the pastor says, raise your hand, and you all just did it. That made my night. And, like, literally rehearsed a thousand different scenarios. But if they raise their hands, what do I do? If they don't raise their hands, what do I do? But you all raise your hands. That was fantastic. Justice is an incredibly important virtue in this country specifically. We, we, we are a very litigious society with ideas of fairness and equality and justice. The country is founded on these things, and we fight for these things. I would argue maybe not daily, for some people it's daily, but I would say internally we probably view the world through those virtues, because they've been ingrained into our head. And even if you're 
on the left or the right or the middle, up, down, or in outer space, these ideas of equality, justice, and fairness are still important. And I think that's probably one thing that, that both sides of the political aisle still share, maybe. By the way, primary election was today. Hopefully you all participated. Sorry. Was a quick aside. <laughs> I'm a political science major, so I had to say something. Um, but the point is, is that justice, fairness, and equality are so important. So important that actually over 100 million cases are filed in state trial courts each year within all 50 states. That does include the 400,000 federal trial courts that are filed in the United States each year. When, when, when something unfair happens in this country, we immediately run to the courts for justice. And Job has been doing essentially the exact same thing. He has been running to God, asking, I need answers to justify what's going on. I need some idea that justice is going to be carried out because what I'm feeling right now is very unfair. And so far, all he's been hearing is not God. And he's been hearing his three great friends who have just been indicting him accusing him of sin, that he's guilty. And so Job is at his wit's end. He, he doesn't believe that God delivers justice anymore. But here is the message of hope. There is justice, and God will punish and give the wicked what they deserve at the end of all things. Psalm, Psalm 37 Turn from evil and do good, then you will dwell in the land forever. For the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Isaiah 30, 18, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. Proverbs 21, 15, When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Our God is a God who loves justice, and there will be a day when every knee bows, and we will see God's justice carried out upon everyone. Job has forgotten that God sees when evil men loot, pillage, destroy, kill. And whether they experience a kind of punishment on earth, or whether they experience a punishment eternally, the point is God will punish them for their deeds. Their deeds will be accounted for. In 2 Peter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. Hitler, Himmler, Stalin, Mao, Pinochet, Margaret Sanger, you name, you have your list of evil people out in the world. Every single one of those people will experience justice and punishment from God. Their fate is grim. And so is ours. You see, this is where Zophar gets it really wrong. He thinks that he's righteous and blameless for the weird, bizarre, simple fact that he isn't experiencing any suffering at the moment. He is righteous and upstanding with God. He is, he is God's true pet. He could not be more wrong. Who are the wicked? We are the wicked. We are the sons of Adam. We are the ones that, that rebel against him constantly. Our nature longs 
to rebel and, and spit in the face of God. Who are the wicked people? We are the ones that are guilty. Every time the Bible talks about punishment for the wicked, that's us. We are unsaved. That's us. Our wage for our sin is eternal fire and damnation. Adam and Eve had sinned, and, and after God had cursed them, Genesis 3, verse 23, it says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. Sin separates us from God completely. And that is justice. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Revelation. Anyone whose name was not written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. There is justice, my friends. And we would be arrogant and foolish to believe that we are somehow deserving or more righteous than than all of those evil people that I just mentioned before. Because the reality is that if any one of them put their faith, their legitimate faith and belief in Jesus Christ, even if it was moments before they died, God will have mercy on them. And there's the hope again. Psalm 33.5 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of His unfailing love. Did you notice? God loves justice. And praise God, He just loves. Because He has every single unquestionable right to vanquish every single being on this planet, and it would be just. But His unfailing love for us sent His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins. And if we choose to put our faith in Him, we can live eternally with Him and be saved from the damnation and wage of our sin. For the wicked and for the unsaved, there's justice. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, there's mercy and there's grace. Isaiah 53, 6 says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God recognizes and sees that we have all sinned. He sees that. And his love for justice and righteousness compels him to damn us. And his unfailing love for each of us compels him to send Jesus Christ to earth so that we might have a way to be redeemed. God is so gracious that he devised a plan that would demonstrate his own deep love for all mankind without compromising his own pure righteous justice so that instead of the wrath of God being justly poured out over the heads of all sinners, he would give his only begotten son as the only possible perfect sin offering to pay the price for the sins of the whole world. So, so what, does this, what does this good news mean for us? Uh, I wonder what would have gone through Job's head if he had known that there was a redeeming Savior coming in the future. If he had known that there was a Messiah, 
that was, that was going to, to be the way and the light. It changes the whole perspective when you know that. And what, what I do know is that each of us, myself included, walked in here with a big, big bag of crap. A big bag of crap. And we don't deserve eternity. We, we don't do anything to earn that. It's just a gift. It's pretty dang good news. Jesus can take all of that away. He did take that all away. And, and, and His righteousness can be ascribed to us in return. It's such good news, and we need to realize that there is something that needs to be done with that good news for everyone else. Because for those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, who recognize that, that we are sinful, and that on our own, our, our fate is grim, this earth is the closest thing we will ever come to hell. For those who don't know Jesus, who don't believe, this earth, this crappy planet, is the closest thing that they will ever come to heaven. Unless we do our part to share the gospel and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to tell everyone that, yeah, you're all wicked, and I'm here to say, if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus Christ yet, you can be saved. Because justice is coming. It's terrifying. And it's pure. But Jesus gave you a gift, and he really, really wants you to take it from him. So as believers, we need to go out and spread this good news. Matthew 28, verse 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The theme for this series, I think I finally put words to it, and the four leaders, um, we've been talking about it in our meetings Tuesday, I think, I think the theme, you could put it into words for this series in Job, is how to steward our pain and suffering well. And what I've learned through this study is that there are so many good ways to handle our pain and our suffering biblically. Job's experience has taught and rebuked me. And as I was writing this message for you guys today, what, what, what dawned on me is that we actually have the privilege of doing something that, that Job didn't get to do while he was suffering. And you see, Job didn't, didn't know that Jesus was coming. We do. We do know that Jesus came and that he's coming back again. So in the midst of our pain, we have the privilege of declaring to everyone else that I can suffer in anguish physically and mentally and emotionally, and I still have a reason to praise God because Jesus came to earth to die for my sins, and that is worth praising him for, even if I'm in the pit of despair. I love reading stories about people who are persecuted across the world. They are put in inhumane conditions. Richard Warmbrand is one. Probably like the go-to, or the voice of the martyrs if you follow them at all. He's the founder of that organization. Richard Warmbrand was put in a cell 
no lights, no food, no bed. And the thing that, that just blew people's minds is even though he was deprived of, of so much essential nutrients and water and a bed, he was, he was just elated to share the gospel with others. And then excuse the fact that he, he probably felt hunger. He probably felt the pain and, and, and the bruises. But, but for us, when we are in the midst of suffering, we know that there's hope beyond the boils, the bruises, and the broken heart. You know, I was writing this, I couldn't help but think of my mom. One of the last, some of the last words she said to anyone were just exclamations about God's love for her, God's love for them, and that she couldn't wait to be home. She was so excited, and she was in pain. But she didn't let that pain serve as an excuse to doubt God or to lose faith. That doesn't mean it wasn't hard. But, but God's last mission for my mom, and the mission he still has for all of us, is when you are experiencing pain and suffering, Angela, you get to testify about me in the midst of it and show people how to steward it well. And that will bring glory to my name. And people will come to me because of how they see you suffer. That's scary if you think about the physical and emotional part of that pain. But what an honor. What a privilege that we get to participate in, in this grand plan and design. We get to be advocates for Jesus Christ and this trap hole of a place. He chose us to serve as witnesses for Him. We know that there is a Redeemer. Job forgot that. Zophar forgot that. So when we are in pain, when we are suffering, let's steward that pain and suffering well for God's glory. And with that, I think I'm going to pray and I'm going to call the worship team up. And bow your heads with me. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you can take a sinner like me and, and save me. I, I don't deserve that, God. None of us deserve that. But we thank you for your sacrifice, God. And I pray that when we are in the midst of a trial, that we would look up. That we would look up to you before looking anywhere else. I thank you for the privilege to be a part of your plan, Jesus. And I pray that we would all do our part to spread that good news to the rest of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.